On this episode, we discuss Google getting into gaming, MySpace deleting a bunch of music, and we answer the question about what happens when Google Fiber abandons your city. In this week's Steven's Geeky Stuff, I give my full review of the Mesa Smart Home Thermostat for electric heating. Plus, I also talk about that time I experimented with the wizard in college. This and more in this week's show. I'm Anthony Bachman from All Things Good and Nerdy, a geeky podcast part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other fantastic geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Here, we're a bunch of geeks talking about geeky things. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven. But what if I'm in the mood for a T-Swift story? Chris. I've heard the X is going to give it to you. And SP. That's how we roll on Gonna Geek on Monday night. We get crazy! Gonna Geek Productions presents the official GunnaGeek.com show. Welcome to episode 279 of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen Jondra, and I'm pleased to say the full crew is here with me today. That's right, we have Chris Farrell. So I did my hair up real nice tonight. You can tell because we have a male director. We also have Stargate Pioneer. Hey guys, it's Monday and it's time for Get a Geek. Guys like the beard? You like the beard? It's coming in really good. Love the beard, love the beard. And I'm pleased to say that today we have JS with... No, no, that's a callback. (gasps) Making you hurt. Your feelings hurt, everybody. That's all. That's all. But we do have Nightwing! No, that's not true either. That's not true either. But we can pretend. We can pretend. I do not know how to say H. There we go. Who are you? He did that really well. (laughs) Maybe Steven was Nightwing. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, first off, let me go ahead and say congratulations, because that means that you didn't listen to the back catalog, and we're proud of you for that. But for those of you that do know what we're talking about, well, then my heart hurts for you. Let's go ahead and move on to the news. Oh, this is a weird one. I'm really excited to talk about this because there's so much mystery. And it's also one of my favorite news stories where we're going to talk about something when we record this on Monday, March 18th. And by the time it's actually released all edited, because we do stream this live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. But by the time it's edited, we're going to have the answer to this because this is a speculatory news story about something that's supposed to be announced tomorrow on March 19th. The rumor is that Google may possibly be entering the world of gaming. There's been a bit of talk about this over the last little while, and we don't know exactly what's going to be happening, but we do know that tomorrow Google is going to be hosting a keynote at the Game Developers Conference where it's expected that they're going to enter the game world of some form. Now, we don't really know how much is planned or what exactly is going to be happening, but we do believe there's some form of level of software because they have been doing some beta testing on something called Project Stream for a little while. We do believe there's some form of hardware involvement because of the fact that there has been 
one of the hardware folks over at Google tweeting about how they're going to be at the Game Developers Conference, but we don't exactly know what is happening. The current top theory is that there's going to essentially be a streaming platform introduced by Google geared towards gaming, all to do with that Project Stream beta, and also that there is maybe going to be minimal hardware element like a Google controller or something like that. We really don't know exactly the details, but it does sound like they're going to be trying to get into that sort of traditional, you might call it console gaming traditionally, but without the console itself. I'm excited to see what this is because we were just talking about this before, how really I don't know that streaming is ready yet for prime time to have your gaming exclusively streamed. But if somebody has a good chance of maybe getting that backbone in place and maybe making this happen, I got to say, I, I overlook Google. I think that Google would be the one that could maybe make this happen because they've they've done a lot with sort of the cloud backbone before. And I do think that they're one that might be able to make this work. Again, I still have concerns if this is a mainstreaming thing about people who do have the 10 megabit per second connection. There's a lot of people like that out there. I think there's a lot of obstacles to overcome here, but I am excited to see what comes out of their keynote tomorrow. I think Project Stream required more than 10 meg down, in all honesty, when I was looking into the beta, and I think it was close to 25 or 30 meg down is what the minimum was, but I could be remembering incorrectly. But regardless, like you said, Stephen, this is, this is interesting news. The cloud play is the play you're seeing a lot of folks make. PlayStation, Sony rather tried it with, the, with their Gaikai service that they bought. And then uh, Microsoft's been pushing really hard the Project xCloud stuff they have. That's how it started that speculation I talked about a couple weeks ago that we might have Game Pass coming to the Switch. And then if you want to add some more fuel to the fire, they did announce today that Google Chrome is soon going to support Nintendo Switch controllers use via Bluetooth, which kind of goes into play with going, hmm. If Google's about to roll out hardware or update the hardware on newer Chromecasts, which have a Bluetooth radio in them for reasons we have yet to figure out, maybe those are some of the controllers that will be able to be used in this Google gaming stream service. That's a good point, and one that I hadn't considered, because if they do allow different controllers and whatnot, that could uh, be an interesting twist, because you would have not everybody using the same controller, which would be more in line with the sort of traditional PC market. They would, but at the same time, let's go and look at the controllers we have for consoles out there nowadays. The Xbox, the Nintendo Switch, and the PlayStation 4 DualShock controllers, they're all laid out about the same. They all have buttons in the exact same places and stuff like that. So while the, the lettering on some buttons might be different, that's something I imagine it's probably easy enough for them to configure on the fly based off of looking at some kind of identifier that's sent via Bluetooth to the device that's playing it. Because I know, for instance, like if I play a Steam game right now, if I plug in an Xbox One or an Xbox 360 controller, it updates all my on-screen cues to have Xbox buttons on it versus keyboard controls and stuff like that. So I don't think it's a problem necessarily if you play on your Google controller that may come out or any of other Bluetooth control you already have. They'll just have to be able to update on the fly to describe buttons differently to you. Uh, let me ask Stargate Pioneer what his thoughts are on this, because SP, I know that you're like top, top dog Google person here on the podcast, right? Google and me, we definitely go long way back together. Oh, yeah. Which is 
true, but I'm not a power Google user. I have iOS devices. I have a Microsoft gaming machine. I'm not a PC console gamer or PC gamer. I, there you go. I said the wrong thing. PC console. That isn't a thing. <laughs> PC console. I like it. So I, I was just thinking as you guys were talking, I have been around since the beginning of video gaming. I have watched everything happen. I have gone in and out certain times. I missed the whole Nintendo thing just because it's a rough time in my life when I was busy doing other things, not gaming. And now we're at a point where I have gotten back into PS4 and Xbox One, Xbox 360, then Xbox One. I do have PS3s as well. And I don't game all that much because because I don't have a lot of time. I'm busy doing adult things like taking care of the house or taking care of family members or rebuilding a stupid car engine that broke. So I have had limited gaming time and I feel like I just have to you know, wash my hands of trying to play through the entire Final Fantasy series <laughs> and try to play through all the Mass Effect stuff and just get in on a game and enjoy it and not try to play it from the beginning because by the time I do get around to it, it's going to be moved on to the next console and I'm going to miss some amazing stuff out there. I miss some amazing games. So maybe this is a wake-up call for me. I don't know if I'll use it or not, but maybe it's a wake-up call for me saying, hey, look, you should try gaming this way and see if it works. I, You know, if it's something fun that I can do for an hour or two a week, that's probably good. But if I'm going to be going against really competitive little tykes that can outgame me because their reaction time is better than me because I'm an old man, then I, I don't know if I can get enjoyment out of that. I do like a good story, though. So if you have a game with a good story, I'll play through the story and I'll enjoy it. So I guess that's where I'm at. And whether or not Google has a gaming console or not, I think is immaterial. Well, I, I have to say that for me, I think that it's it's potentially a double-edged sword. I'm excited to see what happens, but let's be honest, that market is a little saturated, especially outside of Sony. And we've kind of seen a lot of collaboration have to happen because Sony has just dominated so much. And to see another player come in this could possibly give Sony that bigger lift, and I'm a little worried about that. I don't think this is going to be much impact one way or another on the big console gaming systems, because here's the thing. This is not a system you're going to want to go and play like Minecraft on, not Minecraft, excuse me, Fortnite or something like that, or some of those online cooperative shooters or the, or the uh, Battle Royale type games, because there's delay that's going to come in with rendering things on the server and pushing them down. There's going to be lag. There's going to be latency issues. I th I see this Google service being great for single player games. There's rumors they've already talked to Ubisoft and brought them on board. And remember, Ubisoft partnered with them on the Project Stream beta, which was playing the latest Assassin's Creed. I think this is a great service for something that's a single player game where you're not having to worry about communicating with everyone else. And then the latency that comes into communicating to the cloud, having it render in the cloud, push to your console you're going to be screwed for those shooters where you need to have quick twitch reflexes and stuff like that because you won't be able to keep up with the delay. I think there is still a place for that on these current existing consoles and things like this. This is a side project and lots of people have tried cloud streaming. No one has gotten it yet. Google's got a good shot. Yeah, because they have tons of servers. It's the same reason I thought the Microsoft's got a pretty decent shot with their project X cloud stuff. 
we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. And let's also remember, it's not unheard of for Google to try something, it not to do well, and then unceremoniously get canceled. So while I'm not trying to rain on the parade here, it's something to consider if you're if you're curious about this Google gaming product that's going to be coming out and you decide to hop on board with it, there's no guarantee that a year or two from now it's still supported. Whereas a year or two from now, if you're on a Switch, a PlayStation, or an Xbox, there's probably still games coming out. It's probably still being supported, even if the next-gen consoles have come out after that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. Uh, Google doesn't abandon projects. That's blasphemy. And uh, I will wait. Google reader. <laughs> I, I will wait 10 minutes to eat my words. Uh, moving on to the next <laughs> news point here. What do we got going on out of the world of MySpace? So I can't believe we're talking about MySpace. But before we dig into that, what's that old saying? If you say something once on the Internet, it's there forever. Or if you share something on the Internet, you can't get rid of it. Yeah, evidently that's uh, not the case with MySpace. So I kind of missed this fact, but about a year ago, there was a lot of music links on MySpace that just kind of stopped working. And the company insisted they're working on fixing it, but they admitted almost a year later, all of those files are lost. So if you uploaded media between 2003 and 2015, they migrated servers and they screwed it up and there's no backup to, ret to retrieve those files again. So music, music, pictures with your friends, anything like that. Yeah, it's all gone. So why do I bring up music? Because MySpace transitioned a lot into music. That was its second life. They tried to be a way to promote bands for bands to easily promote themselves and share things. So that's the thing you're going to miss the most. But like I said, photos and videos also gone. Why is this important? Let's go back and look. There are some bands like the Arctic Monkeys and Inter Shikari, who I've never really heard of, but it's a pop emo band, according to this. I don't know that they are their big break was on MySpace where people found them similar to like how Justin Bieber got found on YouTube, things like that. So yeah, MySpace losing 13 years worth of data. How, how do you not plan properly to migrate your data? And secondarily, if you're someone who's been relying on MySpace as a backup for your band's music, you're probably pretty hosed <laughs> right now. It's, it's just insane. How do you not plan properly to migrate your data? Hmm. Maybe that's because you're not making any money and you can't afford a actual data engineer to do it right. I mean, but this is your bread and butter. Part of why you're trying to do this is so that you can be like, hey, we're keeping all of the history of these things, all of the music. This is analogous to, let's say, five years from now, the, ne the next thing that comes out to replace Facebook or Twitter comes into place and they migrate their data to something new and Facebook loses 12 years of your photos that you've shared with your family. I actually like expect that. that to happen. I do. It, 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 Facebook is not going to last forever. Maybe it will, but I'm just betting that it's going to go away eventually, and then it'll be a fight to whether the data is still there available for you. But there's a difference between a service sunsetting and shutting down versus botching a migration. Okay, and here's the other side of that coin there. Uh, how do they do a migration? lose data badly and not have <laughs> backups like at the least before you do a migration you have backups that's ridiculous like th this is mind-blowing to me that this could happen like it it's almost like somebody went and uh just deleted everything and then was like oops my bad and then they went into like some discount backup somewhere. Like it's absolutely weird to me that they didn't have a backup. But in the chat over at Geeks.Live, again, we do record this on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern. Suncast is saying maybe they should have contacted archive.org. 
Fair point, Suncast. Absolutely Very fair, fair point. point. I'm not sure if they would have had the bandwidth to deal with all that, though. Yeah, well, who knows? It's, it's who knows? a lot of data to transfer. Did they estimate the size of the data? There was nothing I'd seen in any of the articles I read about estimating the size of it, but let's let's step back in time a little bit. 2002, 2003 time frame, MySpace was still pretty big. I mean, it didn't really start to die off until 2005-ish is when I want to say Facebook came on the scene and really started taking their lunch money, so... I've got it, it was here. Probably I, I pretty found heavy it. in this, the beginning. The size was 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> That's what 1. it was. 1.21 gigawatts. Great Scott. You, you know, Stephen, it's about your kids. Oh, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Speaking of my kids, why will they not have Google Fiber, Stargate Pioneer? Well, I don't know if your kids will or will not have Google Fiber. Actually, I think you do have fiber in your area. It's just not Google. Anyway. This is amazing to me. Of the 19 cities that Google Fiber rolled out to since it began in like 2010, they decided to pull back from one of the cities. I didn't hear about this until I read a story this week on Gizmodo, and it caught my interest enough. I was like, I'm going to talk about it on Gonna Geek this week. And the title of the article on Gizmodo was When Google Fiber Abandons Your City as a Failed Experiment. I was like, huh? I didn't hear about this. And I don't have fiber in my area. So I'm like, I kind of want fiber. So I don't want this to happen to me. Here's the story. Google Fiber, which is Alphabet's gigabit broadband server. Alphabet is the overarching company to Google. Started its relationship with Louisville. So Louisville, Kentucky in 2015. After a two-year delay and negotiations over its rollout, the company adopted a novel but cost-effective plan to bring ultra-fast internet speeds to Kentucky's largest city. Now, in February of 2019, last month as we record this, only 16 months after it turned on the service in Louisville, Google Fiber announced plans to turn it off, making Louisville one of only 19 cities to get Google Fiber since its launch in 2019 or 2010, and then the first to lose it. Google Fiber left behind disappointed customers, unfulfilled promises of transformative economic development, and a slew of embarrassing headlines for a city that allowed the giant tech, or the tech giant, to use it as a guinea pig. Google Fiber, and here's the crux of the issue. Google Fiber learned that nano-trenching, which is the cost-saving process of burying fiber optic cables just two inches, two inches, not two feet, two inches underground, was a bust. A lot of technical problems, a lot of servicing issues, you know, the fiber would break and they'd have to go in and fix it. And what they were trying to do is not do the trenching, but actually like cut into asphalt and sidewalks and then just put the little fiber down two inches underneath. Well, a combination of the cracks that developed over time in the existing architecture, like literally the streets and the sidewalks and the fact that they couldn't seal it up. And then when they did actually seal it up, with asphalt and concrete they would have to go back in and cut it open again to replace it it was just a mess and that's why google stopped this it was unmaintainable but because of this alphabet which is google seems to be scaling back the ambitions of google fiber as a wireless broadband technology and as wireless technology advances and the limitations of fighting entrenched telecom giants become clear and this is from Matt Wood, who happens to be the vice president of policy at broadband advocacy group Free Press. 
So apparently, according to Matt Wood, the issues are it's competing with existing um, customers of uh, broadband cable or DSL who are fighting back because they've got big pockets and they're fighting the wireless technology as it advances into 5G and beyond. So I think not all cities are going to get fiber to them that don't have it already and that is not planned just because the cost is high. Well, guys, what do you think about this? A city losing Google Fiber? Well, it's always been a possibility when you sign up to bring Google Fiber in. I mean, it's been a pilot project. Now, it certainly sucks if you're one of the supposedly about 11,000 customers that could have potentially been Google Fiber customers. But I kind of... I'm not advocating for why they got left, but you kind of understand it. It's super expensive to lay the infrastructure in place, especially when you're competing against others. And you mentioned earlier, 5G, that's supposedly the big thing is going to come and kill a lot of wired connections. Theoretically, we haven't seen a lot of great real world tests of 5G yet, but if it can do what is promised, you could theoretically get better speeds through wireless 5G than you could through fiber coming into your house. So I think in part they might be seeing the writing on the wall that there's not much money to be had here. They've already gotten to test the things they want to test with their, what, 17 other Google Fiber locations, and the best thing in their mind was to pull out. Had this nano-trenching theory worked for them, I think it would be a different story because that would vastly cut down on their infrastructure costs, I wager. But one of the things I read on this nano-trenching thing that was really entertained to me is they were putting it through the asphalt, through the roads. And before they were doing asphalt over top, they tried an epoxy solution. What they didn't realize is that epoxy, even when it dried, stuck to tires fairly well. So as people drove over it every day, they were gradually yanking the epoxy and the fiber up out of the ground. So you can go and see a bunch of these stories like Wired and Gizmodo and The Verge, where they've taken photos around Louisville, where the fiber is literally coming out of the ground, covered in black epoxy gunk. And they're just like, yeah, it's untenable. We can't support this. And Google was spending more time trying to fix the issues there were with nano trenching than being able to do anything. And where it gets even more interesting is that at one point in time, Google had lobbied to be able to use the utility poles to take care of fiber. They actually changed the local laws to allow that. There were more delays for other things. And Google came back with the nano trenching solution and said, hey, we think this can help with a faster rollout. So had they gone the original plan of, you know, using the utility poles, maybe they'd be in better shape. I don't know. Yeah, this is what I was just about to point out here. I don't usually rec- uh, or mention business names uh, when I do the show. I try to avoid them. But where I live, there's two main providers. One is traditionally a DSL provider named Telus. The other is gone the cable route named Shaw. And over the last few years, Telus has been obviously going DSL will not be sustainable. So they have been rolling out a massive fiber network everywhere and they do the telephone poles. And so when I, I've watched in many cases, this, this TELUS company invest have tons of money in putting fiber in and I see them doing the work on the poles, stringing the fiber. And I see that I'm just like, really Google was shoving this in the ground uh, two inches below, like it's mind blowing to me that that they tried that, and just because like I've seen it, I've seen such rapid expansions by this company uh, here where I live, and it's just like I can't believe they're trying to just put this two inches below. It's it's crazy to me, absolutely crazy. I, 
I don't think that would have worked where you live because I know you don't get an awful lot of earthquakes, but you're on the Pacific Rim. And if you do get an earthquake, I could just imagine that fiber just being shredded throughout the entire city, two inches below ground. I mean, even if it's six feet underground, you might run into those problems, but definitely two inches underground. It's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that either. But in any any case, uh, it, it sucks to see Google pulling out of a city, but it's not really unexpected given the amount of competition with I'll call them traditional providers because really there's a lot of people who are companies that are investing in fiber. So Google was going up a very steep hill on this. Moving on to the extra extra section here. Chris Farrell, what do we got going on in the extra extra this week? So this is the thing I wanted to share. Uh, If you have the uh, Nintendo Switch, there is the classic subscription service or whatever you can get from Nintendo where you get a bunch of NES games. And from time to time, Nintendo will randomly drop and surprise some new games in there that you get to play. They just dropped one of my favorite NES games of all time called Star Tropics. Did you guys play this one at all on the NES? I will say yes, so that we can act like we know what you're talking about. Yes. (laughs) I just got done saying I didn't play any Nintendo. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. For those that aren't aware, Star Tropics came out in 1990. It was just added to the Switch Online library. But there's a problem. There's a secret clue that was in the game that unless you have a physical copy of the game, you, you can't figure it out right now. So while this game came out at the end of the NES's life cycle a long time ago, gamers love it because it's a great mix of platforming and RPG elements that folks love. One moment in the game is you as the main character named Mike have to go and unlock a submarine to use. You find a code in your uncle's workshop that sells, tells you to use the code 1776 to unlock it. And then once you find the submarine, all it does is cause it to go underwater. But before you can do anything else, the game tells you you have to find another code. And if you've been paying attention during the game, it tells you about this map that your uncle drew for you that if you put in water will unlock the code. Well, it doesn't exist in the game because it came in the game case. There's actually a paper map in the original Star Tropics that came out with a map that you then have to put in water And once you do, it unlocks the code 747 on it that is used to unlock the submarine. Well, here's the problem. This is a digital-only game on the Nintendo Switch service. So unless you go and Google it online to figure out what the code was in Star Tropics, there's there's no way in-game to have that password or to find the password unless you just guess it just right. And where it gets even more interesting is Star Tropics came out in the virtual console for the Wii U. And what they did on the Wii U they actually put a digital version of the map in there where you watched a video of a map go in water and put this code on there, but they didn't do it for the Switch. So the question is, is Nintendo going to patch this update in or are they going to expect fans just to go online and Google the results from a game that came out in 1990? It's one of those things that it just made me kind of interested because I love some of these old school games. I'm all about preserving them so future generations can play them. But I know I would be frustrated as all hell if I got to a point in the game and like, there's a map that you need to decode a code on. I'm like, map, I haven't found any other maps in this game. What am I supposed to do? Because in today's world, people don't think about the things that came in the box with the game. It's such a different dynamic from 1990 to 2019 now where you're like, oh, yeah, I guess there would have been a paper map. So (laughs) hopefully Nintendo does update the game to do what it did on the Wii U. Or at the very least, fans can just go online. I'm sure you could Google what's the Star Tropics code and it would tell you 747. I just wanted to share it because I thought it was a really neat story. 
It is. Um, this map, though, that's being referred to that came in the game originally, uh, was it like multi-page or what was it? It was on, I, if I recall correctly, it was bundled up into like a piece of paper about like that big and you had to unfold it like you would normally a map and then you had to put it in water. And when you put it in water, I don't know the science behind it, but basically it made that code appear on the map and that's what you put in to unlock the submarine. And I remember being a kid playing this game with my dad. Now, it was 1990, so Chris was all of six or seven years old. So it was mostly me watching my father play this game and getting to a point where dad's like, oh, now we got to get this map out and going with my dad to submerge the map and find the code and being a kid just geeked out of the fact of we found the code. We're going to be able to do it. This is great. It was awesome. Can I just say that the answer to this is ridiculously obvious and it's a matter of simply making a link that has a YouTube video or a GIF or something yeah. of that code appearing so you could still live, right? Like, you know, they, someone must have one somewhere, or a, you know, a video. Like, there must be a way that they can even fake it or whatever so someone can go and, and it, on the screen it says blah, 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 go to this URL. You enter the URL and you see someone doing that code in the water or whatever, right? Like, you know, then you can keep some of that nostalgia there. Like, it's really not that hard of a solution, but they won't do it. They won't do it and they'll expect people to Google it. It's got a certain flair from Ready Player One, though, where Ready Player One, for those that haven't read the book or seen the movie, two slightly different things, same story, but they went about the challenges a little bit differently. It went back to the old school way of people originally hiding Easter eggs in their content, whether it was a video game, D&D, whatever. And I think that they could evolve this into the same sort of thing. So I don't like the, the fact of just giving it away. I like the fact of pointing you somewhere else so you have to do some research and then figure it out along the way. I like that. Like you were saying with the map that you unfold and then you put in water. I think there's something to be said about that because one thing that I got from both reading and watching Ready Player One was I see so little of that these days that, and maybe it's just because I don't game, but I would love to see more of it. Yeah, I would do. It's such a cool little thing. By the way, in the chat, we do have Resident Saver Suncast here to save the day. So if you want to go and head on over to www.geeks.link slash suncast saves, that's geeks.link slash suncast saves with a K. Uh, he has nicely provided saves with a K. So S U N K A S T S A V E S suncast saves. Uh, W-I-T-H-A-K. Whatever. You know what? Slow down this episode. Figure out what I said and all that good stuff because uh, Suncast has managed to find a video of this. So we go ahead and he has saved the day. You can go ahead, Nintendo, and cut Suncast a check. Please note that we do have a 30% finder's yep. fee here for the GuineaGeek.com show. By telling Nintendo to do that, you've pretty much just ensured that whoever posts that video is going to get a DMCA takedown notice, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then when that's gone, we'll go Suncast ruins everything. We'll change the URL at that point. So, well, before we do head on to our featured segment here, I do want to just remind everybody we're part of the Gunna Geek Network. The Gunna Geek Network has some amazing geeky content. And if you haven't had a chance to check that out, I do encourage you to do that because we have a lot of fun people on the network including a brand new edition, which I'm going to go ahead and hashtag blind toss big papa over to SP to talk about. 
The newest show on the GuineaGeek.com network is an amazing show, one very near and dear to my heart because of personal reasons, but it's called The Neuro Nerds. And you might think, oh, Neuro Nerds, maybe they're just nerdy and they're, they're very cerebral. Well, you're partially right. That's because the two hosts of Neuro Nerds are actually brain injury survivors, and they're both geeks. So they talk about geeky stuff, they talk about brain injury stuff, and this is near and dear to my heart because my son is a brain injury survivor with multiple concussions. And they go through it in multiple times, multiple ways. They talk to multiple different people and they talk about geeky, nerdy stuff and it gives them an outlet and it's just a great show. It's produced by Joe. He's one of the hosts. You have Joe and Lauren, not my Lauren, it's a different Lauren, my Lauren on, on uh, Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D., and they have the producer, Felice, who's Joe's girlfriend, and she keeps everybody in line, and it's just a great show. So you go check that out, Neuro Nerds. They have some great interviews. They're out in the West Coast, so they have access to a lot of entertainment and stuff, and they're looking to collaborate. So if you actually know of somebody or yourself have a brain injury story, why don't you go ahead and contact them? Because they are looking to share stories and really getting the awareness of brain injury out there all the time, talking about geeky stuff too. So it's a great show. Once again, it's Neuro Nerds, which can be found at gunageek.com. All right, this is another edition of Steven's Geeky Stuff, and I am pleased today to be providing another smart home device review. That's right. If you've been following the guineageek.com show for a while, you probably know that my ventures in smart home tech followed none other than Chris Farrell. That's right. My good friend, Chris Farrell here. And, you know, honestly, in some ways, I feel that I've surpassed the master. Uh, the least, student is now the master, Stephen. I like, I like to pretend that's the case. Uh, there is something that still stings that Chris has that I did not. And that sting hurt even more when I found out that Stargate Pioneer also had this thing. And I am talking about a smart thermostat because you see, I live in what I've dubbed as baseboard country because I live in one of the only parts of Canada that truthfully doesn't regularly get extreme weather. Yes, that's true. I there is a part of Canada that doesn't get these extreme weather situations. We have a lot of electric baseboard heating here, especially houses that were built like 10 to 20 years ago, that sort of thing. And because I have electric baseboard heating, a lot of the traditional smart thermostats don't work with electric baseboard heating. Seriously, take a look. They don't work. And so I have been on the hunt for something for a while and I came across something called the Mesa Smart Thermostat. And when I saw this Mesa Smart Thermostat, I was very interested because not only did it look good, it also said it worked with electric baseboard heating, exactly what I wanted. So I actually uh, did reach out to them and I'll go ahead and just preface this right now and say that I was sent the Mesa Smart Thermostat for review. And so I am doing this and I was sent the, the product for review, but I do plan to keep this and I will keep this totally honest because I think it's really important, especially when there's so few products out there for a baseboard heater that I do treat this review honestly and make sure that I go through everything and I will, I do have cons. So just there's your disclosure 
right there. Now, this Mesa Smart Thermostat, the primary features are that, uh, aside from the obvious things like voice control through your devices, which I'll talk about in a minute, it also has energy charting. So there is charting of how much energy it's using, it has some scheduling, which of course can be done through an app. It's got temperature monitoring, which of course integrates into some different devices. Again, I'll talk about that in a minute. And it even has a room moisture sensor in it, which is pretty neat because you can sort of see how much moisture is in your room, especially when you're like, why is there 100% moisture in my room? Oh, wait, I left everything running. No, it doesn't happen to me. Uh, there are a couple experimental features with this Mesa smart thermostat, which is geofencing and also some uh, modes like an away mode when you're out of the house and a vacation mode. So those are the main features of the Mesa smart thermostat. Now, I've broken my review into some different categories, and I'm going to start off with the install. The way that this works is, if you didn't gather, the thermostat is a replacement for a traditional baseboard heating thermostat. That means that you need one Mesa Smart thermostat for one baseboard heater thermostat. And if you aren't familiar with the way that that works, is electric baseboard heat thermostats, essentially, uh, there's one per usually per room, sometimes per actual register. Now, the Mesa Smart Thermostat only works with 240 and 120 volt. So it's important that you do make sure that if you have electric baseboard heating, that it does actually fall within one of those categories. And when I went to see if mine was going to be compatible, I actually noticed that my baseboard heating was capable of doing 240 volt or Apparently, there's this thing called 208 volt. I have no idea what it is, but my baseboard said 240 or 208. I did a quick Google. It looks like some like, I'll call it Mickey Mouse type wiring. I don't know. I'm not an electrician, <laughs> but I was like, well, I better make sure it's not 208. And so sure enough, the first thing I had to do was grab my multimeter and test it to make sure it was 240 volt. Once I confirmed that was the case, then I knew I was going to be ready to install. Now, I've done a little bit of electrical work in my lifetime, but Honestly, I was a little bit worried because I'd never done anything with heat before. And when I decided to go through, I started off by looking at their website and they actually had quite a few videos on their website. And so that reassured me a little bit. I felt a little bit more comfortable. And without exaggeration, I have to say it was one of the easiest smart installs that I've ever done, not necessarily from a wiring perspective, but from the fact that they really have gone above and beyond to try to help people understand how to hook it up. There were some videos on their website. There was a compatibility guide, which essentially walked you through pulling off the thermostat, checking the wiring and entering in some boxes to see if your setup was compatible. And the best part was that when I ended up actually downloading the app, getting ready to go, there is a step-by-step -step process on the app that walks you through the whole setup. And it was so easy because it goes through and it says like, step one, shut off your power. Step two, pull off the thermostat. Step three, what color are the wires? How many wires do you have? And it's basically through a whole wizard that walks you through the install. There was very little guesswork to be done because they really have done a good job of trying to make it easy so that anybody who's remotely comfortable with electrical can do this. Now, before I continue, I do want to say I am not an electrician. I am just a regular guy. Follow your local electrical codes. Don't trust me. 
I I'm the type of guy that could possibly electrocute himself. So, just, so don't don't believe me. And I know Stargate Pioneer. You actually he probably have. has. So wait wait a minute, Stephen. What you just told me before the disclaimer was that a magical wizard with a magical box <laughs> that tells stories <laughs> told you how to put the different colors together to produce some magical heat. That's not what I said. For anybody watching this review, uh, there is a step-by-step -step wizard that is a, a how-to on the app. That's the best way to describe it. Oh, is it a white wizard or a dark wizard? Yeah, is it <laughs> Gandalf the Grey or Gandalf the White? Moving on, uh, as I went through there, I found that it was fairly easy to do, and uh, ignoring everything that they just said, uh, it was a really easy, straightforward app uh, that did help me through. Now, one of the things that I do want to mention with this is that there was a little bit of a challenge here that I think is really worth noting here because there was a couple of cons, but the biggest con was my particular wiring that I had. Essentially, when I pulled off the wires and I entered the colors, there's two ways that those wires could have been done. And, and it all comes down to where the line is, the, you know, the power coming from the panel into the thermostat. And because of the specific wiring I had, there was no way for a wizard to be able to test it. So what it said was basically grab one of the wires, plug it in. And I go through and, and continue and get to the last step. And that last step, it says, does it light up to which it didn't light up when I flipped the breaker back on. And then it said, OK, go back and swap it. So, you know, thinking about it for somebody who has no idea about electrical, that's probably the better decision than telling somebody to go and, and test it using tools. So I think they probably made the right decision with that. But it was frustrating as you go and you get it all installed and you get it on the wall and everything. And then you're like, does it light up? No, it doesn't light up. Pull it off them around so that was one of the cons steven did you happen to watch my smart things install video on the gonna geek gear youtube channel yeah youtube.com slash gonna geek gear yeah 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 same thing yeah i know <laughs> uh in addition to that con the other thing that i want to mention as well is that the version that i have is the version one and there is a version two out and on the back, the, there's four different wires, one of which is the ground, and they're four regular wires because it's a regular wire for a ground rather than sort of a traditional ground screw, which I believe was fixed into. Don't quote me on that. There ends up being a lot of wires in the box, and the wires that they provide are quite long, and they don't give you any suggestions to cut them. I don't know if that's because it's stranded or what it is, but the thing is... Um, it's a lot of wire in a box. And so I'm glad to see that they, I remember seeing a difference with the ground. I'm glad to see that they did that for version two, but with version one, it was a lot of wires to shove into a little thermostat electrical box. Moving on from the install to the setup, I will say that there's not a lot for me to talk about from the setup, because if you've ever done any smart stuff before, it was pretty much in line with that. There's no real outstanding pros or cons. It's pretty much the setup exactly like you would expect hooking up to the Wi-Fi, going through the step-by-step -step on the app, setting up an account, all the traditional stuff that you'd find with smart electronics. The only couple things that I will, will mention in this point here is number one, when you do set it up, it's going to ask you whether it's a baseboard heater or a forced fan heater. So it looks like it's compatible with that. If you've ever seen some uh, heaters are in wall and that's like a fan heater, those do exist. It's sort of a, a substitute for baseboard heating. 
The other thing as well is that there's a spot where you can enter your energy rate because as I mentioned, there's energy charting. So it'll kind of do the calculation for you. And then there are some different settings that you can set up with the actual thermostat, which are primarily what is the brightness when the display is active? What is the brightness that you want that display when it's inactive? Is it Celsius or Fahrenheit? Is it uh, an animated prompt when you go and you adjust it on the display? There can be a little animation. And one of the best things if you've got kids is you can actually go and lock the physical display so it's only controlled by smart technology like your voice service device or your phone. Now, moving on to the scheduling, aside from sort of the smart interaction methods that I will talk about in a minute, the primary way that you do control the Mesa Smart Thermostat is through scheduling. And the scheduling, again, is overall pretty straightforward to do. There's, when you go to set up a schedule, there's two options. Do you want to go through manual mode or Stargate Pioneer's favorite mode, the wizard mode? There's the two options there. And I did experiment with both of them, and they're both pretty straightforward to use. From the wizard perspective, when you go into the wizard, there's actually a wizard within the wizard, and it's a double wizard. Wait a minute. Are you just telling me you experimented with a double wizard? I did. I experimented with a double wizard. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> that only happens in college. <laughs> Fair enough. So when you go into the wizard, there is a double wizard. And what it is, is essentially it asks you whether you want to go ahead and use an energy star rated schedule, which is basically just a random out of the box schedule that has certain times associated with certain temperatures. Or do you want to go through the full wizard? And when you go through there, it asks you some questions in a way that is asking about your preferences. So it says like, what time do you go to bed? What time do you want? Do you wake up? Do you leave the house in the day? If so, when do you leave the house in the day? How warm do you like it? How warm do you like it? The room when it's empty? How warm do you like the room when you're sleeping? And based off of those questions, it goes and it fills them all in because it can extrapolate the data. For example, if you say you're away from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and then you say that you like an empty room to be 18 degrees Celsius, then that's going to go and program it in between those hours. So it's a really straightforward wizard. Now, the manual setup is exactly like you would expect. If you've ever used a programmable thermostat, you go and you set the date and the time. It's exactly like that. No different except for the fact that you're doing it from your app, which is a heck of a lot easier than pushing those stupid buttons on the thermostat. So it, it, other than that, though, it works exactly like a regular programmable thermostat. So, Stephen, does it use the GPS in your phone at all to be able to tell if you're in your home and then to change things? That's the experimental geofencing. And truthfully, I okay. didn't have a lot of use for it in the last couple of months that I've been using this because my wife was largely home when I was not. So fair. OK, how many people in Canada actually like their homes at 18 degrees Celsius? Because uh, that's pretty cold for Americans. Yeah, it's not for up here because we're used to being a lot colder than that. <laughs> Uh, one of the I thought best you just said it wasn't cold where you live. <laughs> I said, you're right. You're right. There you go. I've been caught in a lie. Caught in a lie. <laughs> Stephen was trying to act all weather proud. We're going to put him back in his place. Fair We're enough. the ones with the cold weather here. Fair enough. Well, moving back to the scheduling, one last point that I have on that before I go into the overall pros is one of the best parts about the scheduling uh, is that when you set the time that you want it to start, 
it actually will heat up leading up to that. So if I say that I want it to be 20 degrees Celsius at 7 a.m., it will actually make sure it's 20 degrees Celsius at 7 a.m. And the way it does that is over the course of a week, it actually builds a profile for that room. Because when I first hooked this up, I saw that this was supposed to be the case. And I got up at seven o'clock or whatever I had it set at. And I'm like, it's not 20 degrees Celsius. What's going on? So I emailed them and they said that it built a profile over the course of a week. And I noticed it every day. It got better and better and better to the point that it did eventually get to where it was 20 degrees at approximately 7 a.m. So it actually worked really well, which is a really neat feature because of the fact that you don't have to go in and do a little bit of thought. You don't need to go, okay, well, it probably takes about an hour for the room to heat up. So I should probably set it early. You just say what you want it at when you want it. And it, it worked well. I was very surprised. I, I honestly didn't think it was going to work very well. How's the interaction with other rooms? Like if you have a separate thermostat that's controlling multiple rooms and they're going up and down trying to get the right temperature, how does that work? Well, my house, I don't have that problem, but because it's building it over the course of a week, it should be able to figure it out because you're probably going to have mostly the same uh, thing happening on a daily basis where they're going to be fighting and then it's going to kind of accommodate that over the course of a week because, again, it's building it off of that week profile. So it should, in theory, automatically figure that out, but I can't say for sure. So you'd be encouraging automated intelligence wars. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> we Dang, all were going son. down that same path. <laughs> Just because of Canada. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, overall pros that I had when I was trying this out here. Number one, it's simple. I, I've said that a couple of times. I did not expect it to be as simple as it is. They've really made it so that people who have a little bit of experience with apps can figure it out. The app is simple to use. The way you turn it on, up and down on the actual uh, display, really simple. I, I'm surprised because I really did expect that it to be that it would be really complicated. The other thing that I will say is one of the standout things is it's really aesthetically pleasing. I have had so many people come to my house and comment on it because it doesn't look like a traditional thermostat. It's white. It's got little lights on it. It's just that that fancy modern look. So I, I have to say that, that is definitely a, a pro. One thing that I didn't know this had was shortly after I installed it, I ended up getting a power outage and I got an email saying your Mesa thermostat has been offline for, I want to say it was like 12 hours or actually it was less than that. I think it was like six hours or something. So it gave me a heads up that it was offline, which was great because if I did have this in a place that I wasn't regularly able to check if I was worried about pipe freezing, if I didn't live here, if I was worried about pipe freezing, I would have that information. And I thought that was a, a really neat thing that was completely unexpected as well from a smart device integration. There is uh, the, I'm going to say a couple of key phrases here, just so everybody knows before I continue, I'll go ahead and just give that warning. There is Alexa, Google assistant, and even smart things integration. So it's got these three different um, compatibilities. So a bit of variety if you are looking to have uh, it interact with other smart products. The other thing that is in my pros list is that you can enable those experimental features, which is geofencing and shortcuts. So some easier ways to control it as well within the app. 
they've got it laid out really well where if you have multiple thermostats, because you probably will with electric baseboard heater, you can easily see what the temperature is in each of those rooms, what it's set at, as well as the humidity in the room. And the last thing that I did have in the pros was that uh, there's actually, I didn't expect this to be on my pros list because I would kind of rolled my eyes when I saw it. There's this little flame icon. No, it's not to tell you when your house is on fire. What it is, is is their representation when it's actually using power so that you know how much power it's using. Essentially, there's three different flames on it. And so if you see one of those, those sort of waves of the flame lit up, that means it's using a little bit of power and it increases depending on how much power it's using. So you can really kind of see how much draw it's having because electric baseboard heat does usually draw different amounts of power power in the con side of things uh i will say the energy charting as as when i record this in march of 2019 it's only generated once a day i did reach out to misa and they say that they are planning on updating this in the future so that you can generate them more uh on demand or it'll be instant but this is a con if you're really really wanting to see exactly what is happening as you set your temperatures and whatnot you have to wait till the next day to be able to see that chart and what exactly happened with with that room. From a Wi-Fi perspective, falls victim of the same problem many, many wireless devices have, only 2.4 gigahertz. And from the scheduling perspective, I will say if you want to make a change to the scheduling, while it is very easy to set up, it is not easy to modify because you have one entry per day per time. So like if you have it set so that every day at 8 a.m. it's at 20 degrees Celsius and you want to change that to be 21, you have to go into every single entry and modify that. So it's really best just to delete your whole schedule and go through the wizard again. It's much fa faster. So I might have missed it, Stephen. When it comes to making that programming schedule, is that via app only or is there a web version of it as well? It is app only at this okay. time. Yeah, good, good question. The last thing that I need to mention is that uh, they are regularly priced at $139 US per unit, which if you had only one unit, not that bad, but with electric baseboard, you usually have one per room. Definitely can uh, add up very quick considering a regular programmable 30 thermostat is probably like half of that. So yes, you get smart features, but it is on the pricier side. Some miscellaneous wants that I do have on here and this isn't a pro or a con, this is just a miscellaneous item that I wanted to mention, is number one, I think, like many smart devices, it would be very beneficial to be able to share this with another user. As it stands, if I want to go ahead and have a user have access to this, they have to have my account, which isn't the end of the world if it's a spouse or whatever, but what if you have somebody coming over to house it or whatever, or you want to give access to, to your friend, Chris Farrell, just so he can screw around with you and turn up your heat in the middle of the night, whatever it is, it'd be nice to be able to share that. I actually do have a couple of uses for this. The other thing that I think would be a good thing to have would be that energy charting, being able to refresh that manually. Yes, that is a con, but for some people, they're not going to care. Daily's good enough. So that's why I did want to highlight it in my miscellaneous wants as well. So, Stephen, I've already solved that problem of having to share accounts. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to drop in on your Amazon voice services devices and just then use the A trigger word to reset your heat. That's all I'm going to do. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Moving on, uh, energy savings. This is something that a lot of people who have bought this, uh, 
the, the Misa company is really advertising that a lot of people are saying that it saved them a lot of money, especially in those colder temperatures. So how did it fare with me? Well, honestly, I can't give information on that. I would, would be remiss if I didn't mention that the potential is there. But the thing is, I installed this and I, I ended up getting one of those cold snaps that I said that we never get. Uh, for the last couple of months, <laughs> we've had a very unusual winter. And so I don't have a lot to compare it to because of the fact that we have had a very unusual winter, which came pretty much right after I installed it. So you're welcome, everybody else. I caused it. But I will say this, that it did allow me to be able to manage that cold time from a visual perspective. I could see how much energy was being used to heat it a certain uh, temperature at night. And I could really go in and balance that. So when we were in that cold snap, I could go and for one day I would set it or a couple of days I would set it so that it was quite a bit colder at night. And then I would go in and I would change that so it was just a few degrees colder and I could find which was working best for my house to save some money. So yes, I, I have confidence I saved energy over not having it because I could see that right there and see how much it was using throughout the day and really make some adjustments to sort of balance that budget, so to speak. But I can't give you numbers because we've just had an unusual winter. So that is definitely a way that you can use this if you want to try to save money. But if you're someone who has a pretty consistent winter, you might have better figures and you might be able to assess that better yourself. From a smart integrations perspective, I do want to mention this before I do wrap up this review is that there are a couple different ways that this integrates to other smart technology. The first is the Amazon Echo. And I am going to go ahead and say the word right now because the Amazon Echo integration is pretty basic. It's mainly for voice commands. You go in, you add the skill, and now you can do voice commands. For example, I could say, Alexa, what is the temperature in the kitchen at? The kitchen temperature is 22.62 degrees. I could also say, Alexa, set the kitchen to 15 degrees. The heat's set to 15. Alexa, decrease the kitchen temperature by 5 degrees. The heat's set to 10. Alexa, turn off the kitchen thermostat. Okay. Really, the integration with the Echo is just voice control. That's all it is. You give it a command, it adjusts it. So it's as simple as that. Now, on the other hand, the smart things integration, night and day difference. You know, I mentioned this on the show before. I've recently started to dabble in smart things. And with the smart things app, if you go and you link it up, you see everything that you see from a monitoring perspective that you would have in the Mesa app. You see the current temperature, you see what it's set at, you see the room moisture, you end up uh, having the control ability in there as well where you can adjust it. So it's all within the SmartThings app. So if you have SmartThings already, if you're not needing to do that scheduling or any of that other stuff, you have full control right in that app that you're used to. And there's also a text-based history where it actually shows you in half hour increments what the temperature was in the room. Of course, when it does end up adjusting uh, as well, it will show those adjustments on there in the log, so to speak. So the smart things integration night and day compared to the Echo because the Echo is really just voice controls, which is a shame because the Echo, there is such potential there to have it show the temperature and be able to do that. But 
for whatever reason, the skill doesn't. So the smart things integration far, far better than the echo as well from a sort of general perspective. I want to say that the miss that I see with both of these here is at the moment you can't use that temperature to do a routine or a trigger or anything like that. While there's the echo integration and the smart things integration, um, where obviously they're talking to the thermostat with smart things, it's actually showing the temperature. I can't set up a routine or anything based off of the, the temperature on that thermostat, which is a bit of a shame because if like I've got an echo plus and you can, you can set it off based off of that. And I think with smart things you can with like the motion sensors as well, which have a, have a thermometer in them. There is also no Wink support. So if you are a Wink user like Chris Farrell and myself, that's right, I have SmartThings and Wink. There is no Wink support, but honestly, that's not surprising because there's a lot of manufacturers over the last year which have been having troubles getting integration with Wink. Wink has, there's, I've seen a lot of finger pointing at Wink from other manufacturers. So I'm really not surprised to see there not being integration with this product at this time. I'll go ahead and say it. It's probably on Wink's end, but I don't know. That's complete speculation. Overall, I have to say I'm very happy with this. It's been a great addition. It's allowed me to really monitor my energy and really see sort of where I was using it when I could save some money and just have some geeky fun and be able to control it from the app. There is grouping capabilities, so if you have two rooms side by side, you can have the same shared set point so that they're both running off of the same schedule, or you go and you set it for both of them or multiple rooms at the same time. You can absolutely group them. For me personally, with the layout of my house, I didn't have the reason to use that or, or really try that out, but it is a good feature because anyone who uses electric baseboard heating probably knows that if all of a sudden you get that cold snap, now you got to go around and turn up every single one. So it is nice to have that option if you have a house that does warrant that. For me, again, I don't have that use. Yes, there are some things that I'd like to see changed, but overall, I am very, very happy with it to the point that I really have one other room that I probably would consider putting that money into it. And I probably will because this one room that I'm thinking of, it's probably going to be worth spending the $139 in order to add it because it's been solid. It's worked really well. I've never had any outages as well. The integration with smart things app that, uh, let's be honest, I'm probably headed that way. Uh, seem to, to work pretty well. Oh, and by the way, Last point right here. They're a Canadian company. They're a Canadian company that I found out, which is awesome as well. And I'm happy to support the Canadian economy. So if you got any questions about this, please do reach out to me. I've been really happy with it. Yes, it's the first smart thermostat that I've ever tried or used because again, there's not a lot of options out there for electric baseboard heat. So I'm not comparing this to anything. I'm just giving you my experience using it as a first time smart thermostat user. Chris Farrell, Stargate Pioneer, do you have any questions on any of this? I only have one baseboard heater in my house. Otherwise, this would be really tempting to me. And I never turned this one on, I should caveat, because it's in my garage. And I'm like, why do I want to crank the heat in the garage when it's right in front of my car that's covered in rock salt and stuff like that? Pass. But if, if I had a need for it, this certainly fits that need because like you said, I've looked before and not seen a bunch of stuff that deals with electric baseboard heating. The thing I didn't hear you mention, or maybe I missed it. Google Assistant 
Does it work with that? Yes, it does. I did mess that. Um, I didn't try it because I do primarily use the Amazon Echo as well as my phone with the smart things right now. Um, but it does have Google Assistant compatibility as well as Apple HomeKit. Good question. Oh, very nice. So it's got all of the major and I see an if logo on the side, too. So you can use if this, then that. Yes, absolutely. And I probably should have mentioned that really good point. You can do all sorts of stuff with if. Yes, good point. I, I should have mentioned that. I was remiss in that. See, this is why I asked you if you had questions. I got I got thoughts. <laughs> SP? So you mentioned that you might be heading towards smart things, and I just want to caveat, that's reluctantly. You don't <laughs> want is. to move to smart things. You really don't. You've, you fought it every step of the way. I was actually shocked to learn that you got a smart things hub to begin with because you just detested it <laughs> learning into it. So, and for the listener, one of the reasons why is we're seeing Wink become a little bit more unreliable, a little bit more unsupportable of new technology. I'm wondering if they're going to have a uh, Wink 3 come out. Maybe they're throwing development efforts into that, or maybe the fact that they've been pulled from a lot of major uh, distributors and retailers, they're feeling the crux from that and they just can't go any further. So I just wanted to point that out because you said it kind of flippantly at the end, but it is a consideration for the future. No, and it, and it totally ties into this review as well, because like I said, there's no wink support that I've seen. So absolutely. Uh, if there's no wink support on that and you have a wink device, it might be a consideration of yourself if you're really tied into using that wink app. For me, I, I wasn't tied into the Wink app primarily because I, I did kind of convert over to the, the Echoes, but I think it's absolutely worth considering as well. So that's all that I had to say about the Mesa Smart Thermostat. I'm really happy I was able to try it and, and pleasantly surprised. So if you have any questions, please do get in touch with me. I'd be happy to answer them uh, or at least try my best to answer them. But on that note, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Before we close, Chris Farrell, do you have anything that you want to plug or promote? Just like to remind folks, we do stream a lot of live content over on the Gunna Geek Network. So you're on Geeks.Live right now if you're watching this live. And if you're not, head there right now. You can scroll down to the bottom of the page and see a calendar of all of our upcoming live events. Stargate Pioneer, anything that you want to plug or promote? Talking about live events tomorrow night. If you're listening to this after it comes out, don't worry about it. But tomorrow night, we'll be live at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time talking about Captain Marvel on Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. It will be the attempt of us to all get together and talk about the movie. And it's going to be great. And that will be, I believe, Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. episode 274 when it comes out. So if you're listening to this after the fact, Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. 274, we're going to be talking about Captain Marvel. It's going to be a fun time. So on that note, for episode 279 of the OfficialGunnaGeek.com show, I'm Steven Jondru saying, yes, I finally have a smart thermostat. Take that, Chris Farrell. Finally. Finally. I'm Chris Farrell, and I've had my nest for two plus years now. I'm Stargate Pioneer saying I had one months ago, so you're behind the time, Steven. Mm -hmm. Slacker. No, now he's sad. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. 
If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunnageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.